morning and welcome to Rising. It's Monday, so I'm joined remotely by Bacha Angar Sargon, and we have a great show planned for you today. Hello, Bacha. Good morning, Robbie. How are you? I am doing just fine. It's wonderful to see you. You too. All right, Bacha. President Biden is finding himself in quite a pickle. More classified documents from the Obama administration have been found on the private Delaware property of President Joe Biden. A personal attorney for the president confirmed the files turned up during a 13-hour Department of Justice search conducted in the home on Friday. And as the classified document pile grows, some members of the president's own party are having trouble defending the commander-in-chief. Here's veteran Democratic Senator Dick Durbin on CNN yesterday. Well, I'm concerned uh, there's a standard that we follow when it comes to members of Congress and classified information. Uh, the door to my office is closed. The person who presents the document to me takes it out of a locked uh, briefcase, hands it to me and watches as I read it. When I finish reading it, he takes it back, puts it in the briefcase and leaves the scene. I mean, that's how carefully we review these documents to think that any of them ended up uh, in, in, in boxes uh, in storage one place or the other is just unacceptable. So, so this, Robbie, where are you on the on the document gate? <laughs> document gate. Look, I continue to think that one issue, a big issue, is that our government routinely flags as classified like everything because they try to keep their anti-transparency. And this is bipartisan. It's no matter who's in charge. Their anti-transparency want to you know mark everything as classified because they don't want even bare minimum accountability if they can avoid it. So I think that continues to be an important theme here. But that said, look, look, Biden has now been caught with lots of documents. Um, and uh, I think it is legitimately embarrassing because of the perception that they threw the book at Trump or are prepared to throw the book at Trump over um, a similar transgression. Now, it, it's not exactly the same because Trump, importantly, did not agree to give them back. But, you know, they raided his residence. Um, that was embarrassing. Biden got on TV and, you know, gave made remarks about it that this is a very serious thing of a criminal nature. So, you know, he's reaping what he what he uh, he's reaps what he sows a little bit, even though I, I'm not you know trying to establish some kind of equivalency between the two things, nor do I, I necessarily think at the end of the day it's all that important. But I sa actually said the same thing about the Trump documents that like, OK, show me these are the nuclear secrets or the, you know, the, the secret agreement with North Korea or whatever, whatever the libs were fantasizing about with the Trump documents. Right. They're like, oh, this is sur surely the thing that's going to bring him down because people will be so outrage when they find out, you know, these state secrets he was peddling to foreign countries. Of course, there's no evidence that it was anything serious or important whatsoever. Probably that's going to be the same case here. But, uh, but you know, there you go. There is only one acceptable version of this. If you thought that Trump was a treason, treasonous, if you used the word treason, if you used whatever word you used for Trump, is 100% applicable here. If, like me, you thought the whole Trump thing was a nothing burger, that's how you should feel about this as yeah. well. It is, ex as far as I'm concerned, it is exactly the same. The fact that, you know, Biden is too, you know, bound by norms to refuse to give them back is, to me, that's like totally beside the point. It just reveals that it is extremely easy to accidentally walk out of the White House with stuff you shouldn't. Totally agree with you. Way too much stuff is classified. Totally agree with you that there's like very little evidence that like the U.S. was actually harmed by any of this. The fact that like it was in Trump's character to petulantly believe that these were 
were his and it was in Biden's character to probably, you know, forget that he had them or what have you, that that to me is meaningless. Like in both cases, I really I think that, you know, the parade of people on cable news talking about how terrible it was, of course, you know, in a partisan way. I just think that, you know, the you know, these people from from from, you know, what, what people call the deep state. I just don't ha I don't put a lot of stock in that. I will say I do think that the left has a bit of a more higher moral high ground in this case because, uh, you know, conservatives and Republicans were so adamant that it was a nothing burger when it was Trump and now are so adamant that it was like, it's a huge disaster that it was Biden. But if you watch CNN, they, they've been pretty harsh on the president. Now, on the right, there's a conspiracy theory that the reason they're being so harsh on the president right now is because they've had it and they want him not to run. And so they've decided that this is the thing they're going to hang him with in order to sort of gently give him the message or not so gently that, you know, he should step aside in 2024. I don't know if that's true, but, um, you know, I, I, it is heartening to see Democrats, you know, uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar said that she was bothered by it, you know, and, and there is, there has been a lot of hypocrisy on the right um, when it comes to yeah. the two standards. So, yeah. We, we talked uh, last week about Joe Rogan mentioned the yeah, conspiracy that you just brought up, that this is the way his people get rid of him. That just doesn't make sense to me on several levels. One, look, if someone is within the Democratic coalition is sincerely working to get rid of Biden to replace him with someone else, they're kind of just like, aren't they obviously just working toward the detriment of the Democratic Party? Like, they haven't really thought this through. Biden, no matter what I might think of him or you might think of him, look, just had a pretty stunning political success. We have, look, we have to call a spade a spade. He had much better expected midterm results, uh, much better midterm results than expected. And uh, and there's no there's no obvious successor. There's no one better liked in the coalition than he is. Uh, you can imagine a world where there is, because I you would expect he might be unpopular, given a lot of, given a lot of things going on, but he's the best they got. So anyone trying to show him the door, like, I don't really know what their master plan is. So I don't really think, and anyway, I don't really think that's what's happening. I, I think, as you said, he just forgot about where some documents were. It is interesting, I agree with you, watching, uh, for instance, CNN try to attempt to take this as seriously as they treated the Mar-a-Lago documents. Um, you know, I'm, I'm watching, they have what I would, like a, like a faux series, like they're, they're trying to take it seriously, but they, maybe they know in deep down that this is inherently not a very serious thing. So it comes across as sort of fake. Uh, I, I think it makes for kind of hilarious television. But uh, but you're right. They they are trying to sound like they're really outraged by this, and this is a big, 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 big scandal because that's what they said about Trump. And I mean, kudos to them for yeah. for doing so, and kudos to the Democratic lawmakers who are really trying to. I agree with you. I don't know why, but one does get the sense that it's sort of. Um, but they're trying to muster it up. And I think a lot of that comes to character. Like there's, if you're on the left, if you're even on the center, like, you know, things that they say about Trump, when you first hear them, they always sound more truthy, right? Because mm -hmm. he's so flamboyant in his, you know, disregard for norms. But then over and over and over, we've seen that they just were not the case. Um, I, I agree with you to, that Biden has had a stunning first term. Um, he's had a lot of successes, a lot of legislative successes, a lot of bipartisan legislative successes. I think I'm probably one of three people in America who thinks that in 20 years we're going to look back on both 
Trump and Biden and see them both as, you know, pretty good presidents in the long run. Um, although with the caveat that the immigration situation, I think, is extremely dire and, and um, very, very, very bad and 100 um, percent President Biden's fault. Um, I do think that, you know, it would be more dignified for the Democrats to just accept that Biden will probably lose to DeSantis, then go through a rigmarole of replacing him with, you know, a much less well-liked Democratic politician who will lose to DeSantis, right? Um, yeah. there, there does seem to be a lot of wishful thinking. Um, and you're right, the bench is so is so shallow. I mean, they really think Newsom has it, you know, so they, you know who are they really picturing as an alternative? Gretchen Whitmer, I mean, you know, it's very hard to, to think where they're... And I think, you know, the conspiracy theory... Um, I, I don't accept the conspiracy theory. However, I do think that there is something to the idea that um, the same people who worked overtime to get him elected now have a certain level of ambivalence towards him, at least in the media. The one area where it's not showing up, um, there was an article about this in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, is in comedy. Um, he's comedy gold, but the comedians, you know, they seem so solidly in the Democratic Party's camp that, you know, they just, they're so, they won't do anything with it. And again, I, I just, I can't imagine being a conservative or Republican voter and knowing that, you know, of the, you know, 30 channels, there's only one that you can turn on that's not going to insult you by mm -hmm. like refusing to, 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 to do anything with this material. So, and uh, has anyone mentioned, other than you and me and Brianna, has anyone brought up the point that like, clearly there's way too much way too many documents that are classified or that the government has a knee-jerk classify everything approach that it feels like a moment to actually talk about that like the reason this is happening is because there is an inclination toward absurd secrecy and hiding things from the american people that is by part that is an element of the deep state and this actually seems like a great time to talk about it i haven't heard anyone bring that up except on this show have you I haven't, but it, I mean, I think for an obvious reason that people, you know, the media is extremely partisan, right? So, you know, who was going to bring that up, right? I mean, I guess mm -hmm. Republicans could have brought it up when it was Trump, but now that it's Biden, right? And they, they're they very happy to have, you know, an excuse to, to sort of bash him on this, right? It seems like the moment has passed for them, whereas for the Democrats, right, there's, you know, it's it's become increasingly clear, I think, with the Twitter files, with the Facebook file, your Facebook files, Robbie, um, you know, that there there mm -hmm. is... I don't want to use the word deep state because it sounds so conspiratorial, but but that there is a sort of um, bureaucratic administrative class that is very much on the side of the Democrats to a certain mm -hmm. degree, at least in this moment in time, um, you know, and, and of course, now um, seeing how the left has embraced things like secrecy and the FBI and, um, you know, the CIA, anybody who they think was, you know, a foe of Trump is now a hero, right? So, you know, you, you that now seems much more consistent with their abandonment of principles of free speech and, and transparency and accountability. Um, you, you just see what an impact Trump has had on, on the political system here. Mm. We also want to mention over the weekend, tragedy struck in Monterey Park, California, when a gunman shot and killed 10 people, left another 10 wounded. This took place late Saturday evening in a predominantly Asian-American community on Lunar New Year's Eve after a popular festival in the area. 
The gunman, who has been identified as 72-year-old Hukan Tran, is reported to have died from a self-inflicted gun wound, according to CBS News. This all took place in a dance studio that the suspect was believed to have frequented sometime in the past. Um, obviously, our thoughts are with the victims and their families, and we hope for speedy recoveries for those who are injured and are hospitalized. We will, of course, continue to cover those tragic events as we gain more information, and we'll have more rising right after this. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, last week I released the Facebook files, emails between the CDC and Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, that show how government health bureaucrats were able to influence the COVID debate on social media throughout the pandemic. Messages I obtained as part of the state of Missouri's lawsuit against the federal government showed that the CDC and Facebook communicated constantly, sometimes daily, and that Meta asked federal health officials to vet specific claims about vaccines, about masks, and even about the origins of COVID-19. In May of 2021, CDC officials began routinely vetting claims about COVID-19 vaccines that had appeared on Facebook. The platform left it up to the federal government to determine which assertions were accurate, as you can see here. Facebook's moderators note that some of the above claims would already be violating an implicit admission that the CDC's opinion on the other claims would be a deciding factor in whether the platforms would restrict such content. Facebook was clearly a willing participant in this process. Moderators repeatedly thanked the CDC for its help in debunking. Claims vetted by the CDC included whether COVID-19 is man-made. The CDC told Facebook that it was theoretically possible, but extremely unlikely. Now, if the tone of Meta's communication seems extremely friendly, it's worth noting that staffers viewed government employees at the CDC as their colleagues. They used that word to describe them. In one email, Meta discussed providing said colleagues with access to a reporting channel for COVID misinformation. The list of individuals with access included CDC staff, as well as employees at Rheingold, a communications firm advising government health agencies. Keep in mind that while the CDC was privately advising Facebook on which assertions it should allow on the platform, Democratic political figures, including President Joe Biden, railed against social media companies for not censoring enough alleged misinformation. Biden said Facebook was killing people. So here's the big question, it's the one raised by the lawsuit. Taken together, does the federal government's actions, its pressure campaign on social media companies, violate the First Amendment. Facebook, after all, is a private entity and thus is within its rights to moderate content really in any fashion it does see fit. But the federal government's actions can't simply be waved away. A private company may choose to exclude certain perspectives, but if the company only takes such action after politicians and bureaucrats threaten it, reasonable people might conclude that the choice was an illusion. Such an arrangement whereby private entities at the behest of the government become ideological enforcers is unacceptable, and it may be illegal. That's the subject of this radar, and also of my cover story for the March 2023 issue of Reason Magazine. You should check that out. There is a word for government officials using the threat of punishment to extort desired behaviors from private actors. It's called jawboning. The term arose from the biblical story of Samson, who is said to have slain a thousand enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. 
According to The Economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, the words public policy use began with, the, with World War II era Office of Price Administration and Civilian Supply, which primarily relied on verbal condemnation to punish violators. President John F. Kennedy jawboned steel manufacturers in the 1960s when he threatened to have the Department of Justice investigate them if they raised prices. Jimmy Carter did the same to try to fight inflation in the 1970s. During the 2000 presidential campaign, Republican candidate George W. Bush explicitly stated that he would jawbone Saudi Arabia to secure lower energy prices. John Kerry criticized him for it. While jawboning has generally referred to economic activity, to attempts to intimidate other entities into changing prices or policies, there's a history of speech-related jawboning, too. Will Duffield, a policy analyst at the Libertarian Cato Institute, thinks the federal government's jawboning on COVID-19 misinformation might violate the First Amendment. Multiple arms of the administration delivered the jawboning effort together, he told me in an interview. Each one component wouldn't rise to something legally actionable, but when taken as a whole administration push, it might. In a recent paper on social media and jawboning, Duffield pointed to two very different Supreme Court precedents that could provide insight, Bantam Books versus Sullivan and Blum versus Uretsky. In the 1963 Bantam decision, the court held eight to one that a Rhode Island commission had unconstitutionally violated the rights of a book distributor when it advised the distributor against publishing obscene content. In the court's view, the implicit threat of prosecution under obscenity law was an act of intimidation. Richard Posner, a widely cited former judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, referenced this decision, Bantam, in a 2015 case, Backpage v. Dart, where Tom Dart, an Illinois sheriff, had attempted to throttle the advertising of adult services on Internet platforms by threatening credit card companies that do business with them. Ruling against Dart and in favor of the platforms, Posner wrote that a public official who tries to shut down an avenue of expression of ideas and opinions through actual or threatened imposition of government power or sanction is violating the First Amendment. So if that standard were the law of the land, it would be difficult to view the Biden administration's jawboning as constitutional. However, in the 1982 Blum case, the Supreme Court took a much more dismissive view of informal government pressures. That, dis that decision held that government jawboning is only illegal when the state has exercised coercive power or has provided significant encouragement, either overt or covert. Now, a better solution to all of this would be to explicitly prohibit government officials from engaging in jawboning. Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, a Republican representative from Washington, has introduced a bill, the Protecting Speech from Government Interference Act, that would penalize federal employees who use their position to push for speech restrictions. Enforcement would be akin to the Hatch Act, which prohibits federal employees from using their positions to engage in campaign activities. If this bill were to become law, federal officials would have to be much more careful about advising social media platforms to censor speech or risk loss of pay or even termination. This is the superior approach. Legislators should regulate government employees' encouragement of censorship on social media platforms rather than the platforms themselves. So, Bacha, I published last week uh, these emails from the CDC to Facebook that I thought were astonishing. And, and look, people can reach whatever conclusions they want to reach. I was blown away by and thought people should know about how frequent the communications were between the CDC and Meta, how much um, uh, how much 
guidance and input was sought by the social media companies from the government. At the same time that in public, Democratic political figures were threatening these companies with increased regulations if they didn't do more to fight misinformation. With all of that in mind, and with everything we've seen with the Twitter files in mind, the question becomes, does this you know, skirt the line, cross into a violation of the First Amendment, even if, you know, no, even if the government didn't explicitly ban or arrest or pass a law violating the speech rights and thus violating the First Amendment, is the pressure enough when you put all of these elements together to say that something unconstitutional was done? And it's an open question, but that was me, uh, me kind of exploring it. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, your reporting has been incredible and a real addition to the conversation. It, it was, I think, really important to take it away from the Twitter context and show that it's, you know, hashtag not just Twitter, right? <laughs> um, and also to take it out of um, whatever sort of conditions, you know, were set on the Twitter files. You did your own reporting and it was it's really incredible and really important, Robbie. I think you're completely right. The question is, you know, to what degree is this jawboning something that, you know, to what degree was there an implied coordination between, let's say, the CDC and lawmakers who could penalize social media companies. I totally agree with you. I think the question is still out. However, what you have uncovered is still very bad. And I think, you know, even if you're a liberal and even if you thought that COVID misinformation should be censored, you should not want your fellow Americans to live like this, right? To live in a mm -hmm. context where they feel that there is this collusion is the only word for it um, on for for your side, even if this is your side, because that makes people crazy. You know, it, it makes people feel silenced and unheard and 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 subjected to a cabal. And you, you should not want that. That I, I will say, I, I think that there's one question that I'm very curious about, which is. I think to make the jawboning argument, you would have to show that irrespective of the administration, the social media companies were behaving in the same way, right? Because the, the argument I would make is, if they were comfortable ignoring Trump administration requests <laughs> because they were not ideologically aligned with them, I think that a little bit weakens the jawboning argument because it shows that this was more social media companies' desire to um, enforce their own views rather than their fear of government reprisals. But again, this is nitpicking. What you've uncovered is extremely important, and, and I'm so glad that it's out there, and I really hope that this will be a wake-up call for liberals to see, like, it's it's just not fair that because you happen to be on the side of the people with this much power, therefore your view gets to be the only one that's heard. I really hope that people on the left can hear that message. Thank you very much, Bacha. Yeah, I wonder uh, if they could do it all over again, the social media companies, yeah, and by it, I mean, you know, the last, like, four or five years, how, uh, if it would be the same thing or would there be even more pushback? Because I, I think Twitter, and I'm not even talking about like the Elon Musk regime, but I bet a lot of you know, content moderator type people at Twitter regret even giving the FBI, for example, an inch. And, and they did push back at first, and then, you know, then they got totally rolled over by this agency. I wonder if there's any similar thoughts, maybe for not all of it, but uh, for some of for instance, at Meta, like when they, you know, in the email where they, they inform the CDC that Fauci is coming under serious mockery for changing his positions on masks. Was that appropriate? Do they still think that was appropriate now that he's yeah. seen as a more 
you know, nakedly political actor? You know, would they have warned uh, the Trump administration, White House, that Trump, you know, some viral claim mocking Trump is uh, is really popular on the platform? It's very interesting questions. So you're right, the difference between the administrations um, might be key. So I'm looking forward to what you have on your radar, Bacha, and that will be up next. What's on your radar, Bacha? Well, a crack has emerged in the United Front. NATO member states have shown thus far in support of Ukraine's fight against Russia's invasion. At a key meeting of Western allies at the Rammstein Air Base in Germany this past weekend, the U.S. and others urged Germany to provide Ukraine with battle tanks known as the Leopard 2, considered the most advanced tank in the world. The tanks can travel up to 44 miles an hour, even on rough terrain, which is extremely fast for such a heavily armed vehicle. They're armed with a cannon, a machine gun, and automatic grenade launchers and have ballistic and mine protections. But Germany has thus far ignored the pressure, even refused to allow other European countries in possession of Leopard tanks to send their own to assist Ukraine. NATO member countries collectively own about 2,000 Leopard tanks, and Poland, Finland, Denmark, and Spain have said they would be willing to supply Ukraine with 14 tanks each. But they need German approval to do so, and Germany has refused to grant it. Poland initially said it would send 14 leopards with or without Germany's approval, but then backed down and signaled a willingness to wait. The rift between Germany and the other NATO member states has emerged amidst plans for a big offensive by Ukraine in which it hopes to retake territory. Recent reporting revealed that the U.S. is warming to the idea of helping Ukraine retake Crimea, which Russia annexed in 2014. The New York Times reported last week that though, quote, privately, military and administration officials had questioned the utility of Ukraine focusing attacks on Crimea, arguing Kiev's military had better targets elsewhere on the battlefield, the Biden administration is now considering helping Ukraine attack Crimea. It's important to remember that Crimea was part of Russia from 1783 until 1954, when Nikita Khrushchev, then first secretary of the USSR, transferred the peninsula to Ukraine to shore up elite support in a domestic power struggle after Stalin's death. You're not really to bring that up these days. You're not supposed to point out that back when Russian President Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea in 2014, the U.S. did not think it was in our national interest to go to war with Russia over the move. You're not supposed to ask why Crimea belonging to Ukraine rather than Russia is in the U.S. national interest, something no one has explained. Indeed, something no one has been called upon to explain here in the U.S., where the mainstream media is so solidly on the side of escalation and so rapidly against diplomacy that no one ever demands answers about the billions and billions of dollars we're spending on this conflict. Not so in Germany, which is refusing to play ball. Germany initially said it wouldn't send the Leopards unless the U.S. sent its Abrams tanks, something Pentagon officials have refused to do, they say because of how much fuel they consume and how hard they are to operate and maintain. But Germany's reluctance goes much deeper than a quid pro quo or a desire to share the blame for a new offensive. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz may be unpopular among NATO allies right now, but his decision to say no to Ukraine is solidly aligned with public opinion in Germany. 
Like most people in the West, Germans support Ukraine in the conflict. And yet a poll taken on January 8th found that 50 percent of Germans oppose sending tanks to Ukraine compared to just 38 percent in favor, the Wall Street Journal reported. Those numbers have wavered due to -to wall-to-wall support for sending the tanks in the German mainstream media. But there remains strong support for Schultz's cautious approach, especially among younger Germans and Germans living in what was once the communist GDR. Germany has supplied Ukraine with support, the most support, in fact, after the U.S. and the U.K., abandoning a longstanding policy of not exporting arms to conflict zones. But it is extremely reticent to be seen escalating a conflict that's happening so close by against a foe with nuclear weapons. As Schultz's chief of staff, Wolfgang Schmidt, put it, if you have main battle tanks on the front line and they are captured with the German Iron Cross on it, that is the perfect propaganda material to say, look, we've always said it's NATO attacking us. In other words, Germany is sensitive to proving Putin right about his fears about NATO aggression, which was the ostensible justification for his invasion of Ukraine in the first place. But it goes deeper than that. Germany spends less on its military than its Western allies, failing to achieve the target set by NATO of 2% of GDP on defense spending per year. And it's by design. Quote, Germany has been on a peacetime footing for years, explained Christian Mülling, deputy director at the German Council on Foreign Relations. The truth is that for decades we have seen our defense budget as a gift to our allies because they thought it was important, he said. An annual survey explains why. Year after year, Germans tell pollsters that diplomatic negotiation is the best way to resolve conflict. After initiating two world wars, Germans remain plagued with guilt and committed to a vision of themselves as turning their backs on a bloody past in favor of a peacekeeping present and future. Germany has a longstanding policy of restraint when it comes to military conflict of all sorts, and weapons export is seen as fueling conflict rather than reducing conflict, Thomas Kleine Brockhoff from the German Marshall Fund told the BBC. Quote, to export arms into the bloodlands that Germany helped to create, to supply one part of the bloodlands with arms against the other part of the bloodlands is an anathema in the German political debate. With their bloody history, German voters want their elected officials to try every diplomatic means necessary to pursue resolution before escalating a war, especially in a case like the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in which supplying tanks will certainly result in more killing, but will not necessarily put an end to the conflict. And German voters' elected officials listen to them. What a difference from how the Ukraine is treated in American public discourse, where all debate about funding to Ukraine is verboten. Anyone advocating for a diplomatic resolution is called a Putin stooge. And the millions and millions of Americans who have soured on their taxpayer dollars going to escalate a war instead of end it are simply ignored, erased from view by media and political elites with a singular view on the issue. Though support for endless funding for Ukraine is slipping in the U.S., On Saturday, President Biden reiterated that Ukraine was going to get everything they need when asked about the leopard tanks. Watch. Do you support Poland's call to send Leopard tanks by Germany and other countries, Leopard tanks, to Ukraine? Ukraine's going to get all the help they need. Our politicians stand to learn a lot from Chancellor Schultz, who takes seriously what the people he represents believe is the right course of action. Schultz is currently withstanding immense pressure to put the needs of NATO and Ukraine above those of his own people. And he's shown remarkable courage facing down accusations of cowardice. 
I hope he stands strong, and not because I don't want Ukraine to emerge victorious from this conflict. Of course I do. But because it is treasonous to sacrifice the people who elected you on the altar of another nation's interests, another nation's conflicts, another nation's view of history. Germany understands that it is not at war with Russia and does not want to be. And there are ways of supporting Ukraine that maintain that status quo and ways of supporting Ukraine that disrupt it. It's clear what the German people have chosen and that their representatives have chosen to listen to them. If only our elected officials here in the U.S., felt similarly. So Robbie, you know, this situation with the tanks, it really is amazing to me to see, you know, what principled courage looks like. You know, everybody now is calling Germany, you know, cowards, you know, decrying their reticence. The pressure is immense. I mean, imagine having the entire NATO alliance, you know, demanding something of you. And yet, so far, they have refused to go against what their people want, what their sense of um, the situation calls for. And to say we refuse to be at war with Russia, you know, forever, basically, you know, because that's not the situation as it is right now and not how the situation as we see it. So I, I just think that there's a lot that our elected officials could learn from this situation. And, you know, again, I just keep going. There's, you know, these moments that live rent free in my in my mind. And one of them is, you know, Trump saying, why do we even need NATO? And, you know, th that question is just the kind of thing that you have to be, you know, someone like Trump to even ask, because it is so ingrained that this is just, you know, the way that business is done. So where, where are you on all of this? Yeah, I mean, it matters where the people are. Governments, democratic government, Western governments that purport to be democracies, where, where there's a consent of the, gov the, the, the governed give consent to their, to their rulers, to the authority, to make decisions with the explicit idea that that power is taken back if the rulers do things continuously that the people don't actually want. What do the people want in this conflict? What do, what do the people in, in Germany or in the U.S. want? And one gets the feelings that the elites, the kind of people who you know, go, went to Davos last week, um, aren't paying close enough attention to what the people are actually saying. Because I get the idea that the people are not so gung-ho, let's keep this conflict going as long as it takes, that's fine, any amount of money is, is, uh, is not enough, we'll spend more. That's not where the people are at, that's so clear. And if the elites listen more closely, they would get that. Which doesn't mean we, you know, we, cease, we immediately turn an, a blind eye to the suffering of Ukraine. It means money spent has to be accompanied by a diplomatic urging, a push for negotiations to begin, realistic negotiations that probably will result in Ukraine giving up something it doesn't want to give up in exchange for Russia agreeing to end this conflict, and then and then going forward, maybe there's an agreement to protect Ukraine, et cetera, so this doesn't happen again. Fine. But that doesn't mean we just keep giving money and we say, okay, spend it however you want. The, the, the next check will arrive next month when you need more money. That's It's a waste of money and, and lives, the, the lives being lost. I was seeing it estimated hundreds of thousands of casualties on both sides of this conflict. It's horrible. And that's, and that's Russia's fault. But that doesn't get rid of our obligation to, to try to go a different route or the obligation of governments in Western democracies to listen to what their people want. 
A hundred percent. And I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's Russia's fault that all of these casualties have happened. But have we done everything we could to prevent this conflict from ever starting? No. To make sure that it ends as quickly as possible? No. To make sure that it doesn't become an endless, years-long, entrenched conflict? No. In fact, we've done the opposite. So I, I just really wish that there was more of a debate around this. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, in the domestic in the domestic context, I have to say, you know, um, it, it, there's been reporting that, you know, Kevin McCarthy, as a result of the, the the stand that Marjorie Taylor Greene took for him, you know, to get him elected speaker, that she her profile has really been elevated within the Republican Party. I have to say she's she's been one of the few and strongest voices advocating for a debate on this. So I, I'm hoping that's in that's in the cards. Look at that. All right. We'll have more rising in just a minute. Please stay tuned. The state of Florida has rejected a proposed advanced placement course focused on African-American studies because it included study of topics like the movement for black lives, black feminism, and reparations, according to a list of concerns Governor Ron DeSantis' office gave CNN. The document with concerns also questions the inclusion of certain black authors whose writings mention critical race theory and black communism. The White House has slammed DeSantis's decision. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, quote, it is incomprehensible. Let's be clear, they didn't block AP European history. They didn't block our art history. They didn't block our music history. When you think about the study of black Americans, that is what he wants to block. The AP American, African-American courses, studies courses were first piloted this fall in 60 schools across the country. Senior lecturer of African-American studies at the University of Maryland, Jason Nichols, joins us now to weigh in. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, you wrote a great piece for us at Newsweek about this. Um, lay out your argument about, um, you know, where you're taking issue with uh, with Governor DeSantis on this issue. Well, the thing about African-American studies is a lot of people get it mixed up. They think that African-American studies is simply uh, black history. Now, black history is incredibly important and it's an integral part of African-American studies. But we have to understand that it's much more expansive than just black history. Now, one of the things that we do know and that we think is gonna happen is that the governor DeSantis has a way that he wants black history to be taught. Um, and we've seen this throughout history uh, as a means of steering the next generation and the way they think. And that's problematic for many reasons. Number one, it takes away critical thinking, which is one of the things that African-American studies aims for. It's not a field that teaches people what to think or how to think. Uh, it's something that presents different concepts, different ideas, allows for people to formulate their own way of thinking. And that's really important for the development of young people, for them to be able to see different concepts, different theories, different ideas, and it helps for them to develop their critical thinking skills. And when you rob them of that and just steer them in one direction and only want certain types of history taught or one perspective taught, it can be really problematic. And that's my problem uh, with what uh, Governor DeSantis is doing. So let me play devil's advocate to that a little bit with the caveat that I really don't like the look of the state government telling schools they can't teach some curriculum or whatever. You know, I would I would generally leave it to the schools if one school wants to do teach this, one school wants to teach that. You can pick which school is best for you. That would be my preferred kind of way of going about this. 
But I, I guess I would say, and I, I know a lot of the objection to this c- curriculum in particular stems from what's being taught. There is, I think, the DeSantis administration and other conservatives feel like it's very, it's very left, even very socialist or in communist. But, uh, but, but isn't, I mean, African-American contributions are covered in existing, um, any decent American history course talks about um, African-American uh, inventors and, and poets and artists and then, and then, you know, movements that involved a lot of important and influential black Americans like the Civil Rights Movement. Um, uh, the, the Civil War is a, is a very rigor- rigorously covered topic in all American history classes, again, unless they're totally incompetent. So I, I get part of the argument is that this is this is just part of what, I mean, black Americans' contributions can't be separated from American history, so why have a separate course about it? So again, it's, it's more than history, but one of the things that, that I would say is, uh, you said decent courses, and uh, I think that, that that's the key there. You don't know, always get that. What you oftentimes get is the month of February where they talk about Dr. King, and they oftentimes put him in the wrong context, as his daughter would say. Uh, so I don't think that you're necessarily getting what you would get uh, in, Afri- in an African-American studies course. And you get more depth the way you get in uh, the European history and culture courses, the way that you could take in Florida, or the way you uh, get in the Spanish uh, history and culture courses that you would take a- in Florida. So basically, African-American history and culture is something that is being studied uh, or should be studied on the same level because, as you said, African Americans have made great contributions. They've also uh, suffered a lot of things that uh, need to be discussed if we want to move forward. One of the things that I think we all know is that, you know, if you don't learn about history, you're deemed to repeat it. But again, this is more than just history. Some of the concepts uh, are difficult concepts. Uh, institutional racism, white supremacy, these are difficult concepts to discuss. But in order to develop critical thinking, uh, I've had students who are, who are incredibly conservative uh, who have enjoyed the courses and learned a lot, and they're no less conservative. They just have a different view or broader context for their beliefs. And I think that that is important uh, for young people to have. I mean, I, I agree in part and disagree in part, uh, because I don't think it's a direct comparison to say because uh, this is African American history, it is not like if this was an African history class, then it would be a history of the continent of Africa. That would be like having the European history class or, or you know whatever civilization history class. We're talking about a subgroup of the American experience, but there isn't a there. I don't think there's an Italian American history class or an Irish American history class. Nor do those uh, ethnicities have their own kind of. Month-long uh, place in the curriculum, and I'm not saying they should, but their 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 um, their impact on the American experience, the the migrant experience, you know how they they formed those cities in New York, Boston, etc., is, is talked about within the context of American history. There are chapters and sections on it. African-American history has a place in that has a very large, very very large place. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I, I guess that would that would be my. I, I don't think it's the same as like a European history class or a Spanish history class. Those are those are civil. If, if they were vetoing an African history class, then I would say yeah, that's pretty 
just flat out objectionable. But I don't think it's the same thing as that. And, and it sounds like you agree that it's not the same thing as that because you're saying where you're not just talking about the history of these people, but there's a, a, a lens of analysis, a sociological, cultural analysis. And honestly, I think that's what the DeSantis administration is probably objecting to, because that has a history of being very left-coded, like extremely left. So I think that it is true that that is what they object to. Because, again, the way that history has been taught, the way I learned it in school, first of all, when we talk about this, we have to remember the context of Florida, uh, where in my piece I mentioned the fact that Florida still has three Confederate holidays that it observes. Um, it has 75 Confederate monuments. So you're getting a certain slant already. And we know that Confederate monuments come from a miseducation campaign by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It was meant to, in order to make young people, and they had their, their own uh, purposes to make young people see the Civil War as a noble you know, uh, endeavor by the South. And what basically happened was you had generations and generations of people this only stopped around 1978 lost cause history and it was a way of trying to minimize dissent uh and protest from the status quo and to venerate uh things that should be seen as shameful in our history i think what desantis is doing is trying to minimize dissent and trying to keep people from thinking critically and for them to think black history okay we got frederick Douglass, cool we got you know slavery ended we're actually going to throw abraham lincoln in and make him the hero of the end of slavery and then we're going to talk about dr king and take him largely out of context and people will really only remember two quotes i have a dream and something about content of character and not about his democratic socialism and uh his many of his radical beliefs so I think what African-American studies does is recognize the importance of African-Americans. We know in British North America, uh, you know, 1619 is a really important date. It was before the Mayflower. You know, you had the white lion that came to Virginia, you know, in 1619 before 1620, which is when the Mayflower landed. Uh, it's an integral part of American identity and it's been shortchanged for a long time. And so for us to go forward and to really give students uh, the full American experience up until the present and talking about present day issues, why is it that black people are more likely to live near hazardous waste facilities? Why is it that uh, non-white districts receive $23 billion less than white districts despite serving the same amount of students? Why is it that uh, when it comes to drug crimes, innocent blacks are 12 times more likely to be convicted than innocent whites. These are things that students need to question and need to think about. And these are the things that, you know, African-American studies will pose, but not necessarily tell them, hey, it's this or it's that. That's for students to think critically about whether they're conservative or, or uh, uh, liberal or to the left. So I, I really appreciate your focus on critical thinking, Dr. Nichols. Um, my, I, my understanding of the 
uh, Florida's objection is that there wasn't enough critical thinking built into the specific course that it only had one point of view on, for example, reparations, one point of view on affirmative action, which was to support them when we know that these are things that the black community itself is, um, you know, engaged in a very healthy debate about, you know, affirmative action. I think only 51 percent of black Americans support it, you know, just as one example of something that this the course was presenting a single view on something that the black community itself is healthily and happily debating. Um, my question to you would be, is there any version of an African-American studies AP class that you would feel was not giving students the ability to think critically because it was too dogmatic, you know, too dogmatically, let's say, Marxist or whatever the the critique was. What, can you imagine a version of this that you would say, oh, this is not doing what I think it should be doing? What would that look like? So first of all, I think we need to, first of all, remember that AP courses are elective. Like you're not, not every student in Florida is going to take AP yes. African-American studies. They have the opportunity, uh, and if they or their parents object, that they can take European history and culture. They can take art history. There are other courses they can take. This is for students who choose to take African-American studies, uh, AP African-American studies. So I think that's an important point that we need to understand, that this is not being forced on any student any curriculum in African-American studies, if it leans to the left or the right or whatever it is that people uh, interpret, it is not something that's being forced on students. What's being done is it's being taken, the option is being taken away because uh, they don't like certain elements uh, and certain ideas and theories. And from what I understand, it is DeSantis who's saying he doesn't want these things taught. He doesn't, he doesn't like the feminism. He doesn't like uh, the queer studies. Um, and again, I, the thing that would be too dogmatic would be, again, telling students what to think rather than just presenting them with ideas and theories and concepts. I think we should absolutely teach about communism, about socialism, about the differences between the two, about capitalism, and not necessarily say, but capitalism is the winner. You know, allow for students <laughs> to come up and come uh -huh. up with their own ideas and to think critically about these ideas. But it, it's only when you fear that they may come to a different conclusion that you will take the option away from them. And I think, number one, it's disrespectful to our students and to our young people who have those abilities and those cognitive abilities to actually discern what they believe and what they don't believe. We've seen that, you know, I, I think one of the, the, the things that I've seen with young people is they question everything. Um, they are very much idealistic, but they are also uh, some of the people that question. It's older people that get set in their ways and get very upset when new information comes in. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need to understand uh, that young people have the ability and they will look at some of these ideas and they are not necessarily going to believe everything their teacher says. And I think the wrong way to go about it would be a teacher saying this is the right answer and this is the wrong answer when it comes to critical issues. Now, there are things in history that you can't deny. The, the statistics that I stated, which are going on right now, you know, they're redlining cases. We can't talk about redlining in the past when the Department of Justice just a week ago announced that, you know, there's a redlining case where they got $31 million from City National Bank in L.A. for racial redlining. 
We can't say redlining ended in 1968. That's the, the version that you would get in American history. But what you'll get in African American sister, his African American studies in history is a more holistic view. Yeah, we still have these issues. Mm. We still have these challenges. They're still institutionalized. And what you know, uh, what conclusions are you going to come to about them? Mm. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we'll have more rising right after this. M&M's is doing away with their infamous talking characters in an announcement made on Twitter this morning. The company said their spokes candies, I didn't know they were called that, will be temporarily discontinued <laughs> and replaced with someone, quote, America can agree on. Actress and comedian Maya Rudolph, quote, we are confident Ms. Rudolph will champion the power of fun to create a world where everyone feels like they belong. Bacha, what do we think? Did we just witness the canceling of the sexy M&Ms or maybe the unsexy M&Ms, right? That's what I believe Tucker Carlson, our dear friend, was uh, upset about. Yes, it was the canceling of the sneaker-clad M&M. Right. Um, I love that Brianna last week pointed out, you know, it, there's no shame in admitting that some people just don't have the legs to be walking around in sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I have to say, um, you know... I, I think that there's this um, this the, the, the way they're phrasing it right in a war to create a world where everyone feels like they belong. That was how they phrased correcting the like quote woke correction right. So you started out with sexy M and M with high heels right. Then they were like no more high heels. Sexy is forbidden. We must live in a world where no one is sexy. Uh, you know, sneakers for everybody, right? So then she was in sneakers, right? And this is now they're trying to correct for that. Am I understanding the timeline correctly? Yes. That, that's what happened, right? Yes. And the way they're framing canceling sneakers girl, sneakers spokes candy is we want a world where everyone feels like they belong. And to me, that is really, um, it's sort of they accidentally are admitting the problem with woke culture, which is that in the name of inclusivity, they've made some people feel excluded. No, I mean, isn't that sort right. of, didn't they kind of put their finger on the truth accidentally, which is that this kind of, you know, quote unquote, more inclusive world in which if you have the right politics, you will see yourself now in TV and film and whatever, they're sort of tacitly admitting like that there has been a little bit of an exclusion though of the mainstream in the name of that crusade, no? Well, they didn't notice that they did not add a sneaker clad M&M. They changed one of their existing M&Ms. And yes, we're talking about this. It's okay. We've talked about a bunch of other important things before anyone goes, why, are you, why do you care so much? Why are you talking about this? Because we like to have fun every now and then. But anyway, they changed one of the M&Ms to be sneaker clad to, to D to defeminize the M&M or something, uh, which I think that's what the people objected to. You know, it's, it's perfectly okay to have a less feminine M&M, but the, ide the idea that the stereotypically pretty or whatever is not acceptable, how is that inclusive? Is it, does inclusive just mean everyone similarly um, uninteresting, ambiguous, etc.? Is that really more inclusive? And sometimes the wokeness feels like a cudgel by which we're just we're erasing others in, in pursuit of making a different group happy. And I think that's what 
angered people about this whole thing. A, a situation that I don't think is, is improved or resolved whatsoever by getting rid of all of them and replacing them with <laughs> Maya Rudolph. As much as I have enjoyed her comedy in, uh, in uh, several different things, this seems like. Well, also, this seems just frankly unnecessary. Like, who is in the who is in the comms and PR department for for the M and M's makers that they're like so online that they're very worried about this? I mean, just just own what you're doing or undo it. Don't like don't like be you know broadcasting to all of Twitter how how uh, how, how much uh, Tucker Carlson is like living rent free inside your head. I guess. <laughs> Now, did they did they take away her eye? She used to have eyelashes and high heels, right? Did they take away the Maya eyelashes Rudolph as well? Or the Eminem? No, the Eminem, the the sexy Eminem. Um, Was that part of the? I'm gonna Google this, and Lord have mercy, what we find. Um, because I do think that these things are very interesting because they they sort of give you a sense of, um, you know, the I mean, culture wars are often. I mean, as I've made the argument here many times, they're yeah. often sort of code for for class wars, right? And what we often see on the on the sort of woke front is a war on a normiedom, right? And a war on like, you know, just how normal people think about things, right? Mm -hmm. That like, you wear high heels, you wear eyelashes, you look sexy, and that's totally fine for some people to do that. Other people want to wear sneakers, other people want to be more in the, you know, and that's totally fine too. And and um, um, there's there's this sense that the um, the culture has moved to a place where the two options are, are made very, very clear. And you really, in moments like this, you really get a sense of like mm -hmm. where people are moving um, and, and the sense of, you know, a right wing that's kind of flexing its power, but not, not in a way that's sort of necessarily regressive, just in a way that's kind of seems sort of like, to me, like very obvious, right? I mean, that, that again, coming back to it, it just seems like, you know, um, we want to create a world where everyone feels like they belong. It's kind of to tacitly admit that they had not been doing that thus far. Um, and I guess it remains a question of, does that, was, was it not inclusive when they had the high heels one, or was it not inclusive when they got rid of her for the, for the sneakers girl? Yeah, they, I'm looking at the old M&M's lineup and then the, the new Wokeified M&M's lineup, and they all look pretty much the same, except they changed the, the high-heeled boots on, on the green M&M's. So it's, it's like, why is it more inclusive? Now they all look the same. They, they look more the same than they did before. So, so it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, I stopped paying attention to the M&M characters. I remember the... Don't you remember the commercials right around Christmas time? Is the red and yellow M&Ms are always getting into trouble? I don't actually remember the other <laughs> M&M characters participating I very much in the advertisements. But but I will say another point that comes up with this with Maya Rudolph is, um, you know, celebrities used to be like, I remember a time when it was. They were not political. Like you didn't really know what, except for like Jane Fonda or somebody who sort of came out in a very political way for a cause. You know, their job was to be beautiful on your screen and pretend to be other people, and that was it. And now with social media, you have all of these celebrities who think that it's their job to weigh in on the culture wars, and that is going to have a huge impact on brand ambassadorships, on things exactly like this, having celebrities be the face of a brand because increasingly they have beclowned themselves by taking really silly political positions. Um, and and up until now, I think it's been for the last five years, at least throughout the Great Awakening, it's been understood that, you know, it's sort of safe to take 
a leftist liberal position politically, like that's where you want to go. You know, if you take a, a right wing position like Gina Serrano did, you're going to get canceled. Right. Um, but I think that we're maybe starting to that there's going to be like a real backlash to that. Right. I mean, how did they pick Maya Rudolph? Right. How did she become the face of inclusivity? Is that really mm -hmm. something that is, you know, how many more celebrities can we say that about that? Really, everybody loves them. And and when they do, it's because someone like Tom Hanks, let's say, right, it's because they haven't take, taken political positions because they're not identified with either the left or the right. Um, and, you know, we, we've, I, I think we're really, really living through the end of celebrity, you know, mm. like the, the influencer movement is really the death of celebrity, because on the one hand, you know, it's it's you know, you, you have much more people who are sort of, you know, Internet famous. But on the other hand, the thing that they're famous for is so quotidian and so pedestrian and so something anybody could achieve. Right. Growing an audience on social media. I mean, like, how hard is that? Right. So uh, it's really it's, it's really sort of brought celebrity like the aura of celebrity. I feel like over the last five years is just like evaporated. And, you know, we're going to it's going to be interesting to follow how that how, how marketing changes as a result of that. Hmm. That's very interesting. Interesting points. All right, Bacha, now that we've delivered that hard-hitting report on the M&Ms, we will be back with more Rising after this. President Trump and others gathered over the weekend to remember Diamond, the late member of the MAGA duo Diamond and Silk. However, things took a turn at the memorial when Silk seemed to suggest Diamond's death was perhaps vaccine-related. Let's watch. We laid her, like they told us to lay her flat. They said do CPR, and it was one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. My husband and I alternated and kept going and going and going until the emergency truck came and came into the, the yard and the EMS came into the house. They did everything that they could. So what I want to say to everybody is don't you dare call me a conspiracy theorist. Because I saw it happen. I saw how it happened. I was there when it happened. And it happened suddenly. I want America to wake up and pay attention. Something ain't right. It's time to investigate what's really going on here and get some answers to why are people falling dead suddenly. So I thought this was worth discussing because I think it's implied there that um, Silk is saying Diamond's death was vaccine-related, um, alluding to the, the idea that people are suddenly dropping dead, which I'm seeing a lot of on social media claims about that. Um, but here's the thing. I, I think, I think we've got to be very careful here, and I, I think, frankly, Silk is not being careful because— well, for one thing, uh, Diamond and Silk both railed against vaccination, against vaccines. So was she even vaccinated? So either, um, either she wasn't vaccinated, in which case this sort of Im implying this is really misleading, or she was vaccinated despite saying the, vac you know, the thing she said publicly about the vaccine. So that would be, I think, a pretty serious hypocrisy. I, I, I think it's very wrong to mislead your audience, or if you're implying to your audience you think there's something wrong with the vaccines if you yourself uh, had, had taken one. Um, and then the other thing being, 
I, I know she was hospitalized very seriously with COVID a few weeks ago. So then, so then to say that if, even if she was vaccinated, the cause is somehow linked to the vaccine rather than some lingering complication of the disease itself. Uh, so I, I find this all a, a little con- confused from Silk's point of view. And I think it's, look, you, you, can be to- you can absolutely be against vaccine mandates or have questions about the vaccines, about which age groups should get them. If, if you think the, the risks or the harms outweigh getting them, that's absolutely your choice. And I, I think people can make that decision in good faith. So I, I'm not like disdaining that at all. But to just like say that if everyone dies now, we're going to say that was because of the vaccine, even if they weren't vaccinated and had recently had a serious case of COVID. I, I think when people are grieving, it helps a lot to feel that your personal grief is has been caused by a bigger issue. I, I think people often take comfort in feeling like there's something bigger to blame for having when they've been robbed mm-hmm. of somebody dear to them. And I, I that that was sort of what it seemed to me like was happening here. Um, I, th- I think that's a very human impulse. Um, and I think you see that with a lot of people who die or are killed um, in ways that touch on, you know, culture war issues or larger issues. It just sort of, I think people take comfort in feeling like there's just a bigger crusade at stake and that it wasn't just like the horror mm. of, you know, a quotidian death caused by um, something like COVID. I mean, we don't know. Right. Um, I think your point is interesting that if she if, if you know, the implication here is that she died because she got vaccinated. Well, then why was she railing against the vaccine while also being vaccinated? Um, I think also a- another aspect of this is. Um, you know the the role that Diamond and Silk played in the in the in the kind of the imagination of the nation um, vis-a-vis Trump was always extremely interesting to me because his relationship with them was um, it was one of those moments where you he, his his humanity really came out. I mean, I you know you could say oh it was cynical. You know he wanted to show that he had support from the black community. He liked you know the 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 how supportive they were of him. They were huge Trump cheerleaders. But I think that um, the the closeness there was not something you can fake. I mean it was just there were like four or five moments, people, times that um, showed a different side of Trump, a more human side of Trump, the side that the people who are close to him say exists, you know, that a lot, you know, a lot of other people don't regularly see. And um, in that sense, I think, you know, I I, I think that was a really important role that they played um, in sort of complexifying what what seemed to be very straightforward, easy categories. Um, And, you know, he, he sort of, you know, came out and, you know, spoke about his grief and, um, in that sense, I think it was super interesting. And and um, and, and the, the reason I bring that up is because, of course, Trump has been a big booster of vaccines. You know, he sort of put his stamp of approval on them. You know, Operation Warp Speed was his. And it's really put him at odds with the more extreme side of his base that's very anti-vax um, and sort of leans towards these these theories about, you know, we, we can't really call them conspiracy theories because we really don't know because so much of the information has been suppressed. But just, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the other side of this vaccine project, um, you know, being more vocal about the, the potential the potential complications and, of course, these big pharmaceutical companies um, requirements that they be uh, protected from any liability there.
Yeah, that is a very interesting point. It's something totally true, and it's interesting. Trump is at odds with the base on that a little bit, the hardcore MAGA base. Um, he gets some of his only uh, kind of boo uh, boo responses when he speaks about Operation Warp Speed, uh, and he wants to take credit for the vaccines being delivered. And it's sort of a losing issue with the with the hardcore uh, his hardcore supporters. I don't think it's a losing issue necessarily with the, with the the rest of the population. I mean, most people. Did get vac like the majority of Americans got vaccinated and don't hold intensely negative views about uh, the vaccines themselves. Obviously, the 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 require requirements mandates are a much more uh, a divided topic and a topic where I probably agree with the hardcore MAGA people on. Um, and, and nor did I want to bring this up because I wanted to you know make light. I mean, this is a horrible thing. Obviously, someone dying. I'm very sad for her loved ones, for uh, for Silk, etc. But they 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 are public figures. They were public figures, and uh, you know I, I think it's when when a public figure is using. Um, a, a, a tragedy. I mean, I say this right when Democratic politicians take tragedies and then start trying to say, well, if only we'd have X, Y, and Z policy. And then Republicans do that on different policies, right? Everyone says, oh, we should have had my policy insert to use that moment to to influence how what the laws are going to be or how Americans should feel about something. I, I mean, I think that's worth uh, 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 probing a little bit, and she seemed to me very much there to be going down the people are suddenly dying, and it's because of the vaccine. Which, look, if that's your argument, just show me some data, right? Show me some evidence that that's the case. Because people keep pointing to things, um, and then I look actually at the data, and they're talking about deaths that could not actually be attributed to uh, to vaccine-induced heart problems that are, I mean, it's a little bit like like anything. It's a little bit actually like COVID deaths themselves now, which are, Dr. Leanna Wen thinks are being overcounted, actually, because people get brought to the hospital for some other reason. Uh, and then, but if they have COVID, it gets recorded as a COVID death, even if COVID is not contributing to it. Um, there's a little bit of that, I think, even going on with the, with the heart condition deaths um, or, or mm -hmm. incidents that are affecting athletes and young people. I mean, there, if you look at that database that was cited by, um, by uh, the, the one, uh, one of the very kind of anti-vaccine doctors, you're looking at like, well, some of these people died of like car crashes, right? That's not the vaccine. <laughs> um, so right. people, people ought to be, I think, very, just as I said, people ought to be careful about saying that everybody who dies who had COVID, it's, it's because of COVID, or attributing everything wrong in our society to long COVID, which is a subject I think you and I feel similarly about. We've had, we've talked to some guests about it and gotten a lot of, lot of blowback from that on social media. I don't know how your, uh, <laughs> your mentions were after we did that interview with, uh, with the New Republic reporter on, uh, on uh, long COVID, and the people came for me after that one. But similarly, I, I counsel a little bit of skepticism or caution with, uh, with the vaccine deaths. So with the alleged yeah. vaccine deaths. Yeah. And it's it's uh, it's interesting because, of course, just a month into the pandemic, conservatives were saying, look, you're overcounting the deaths. Like every person who comes in with a heart attack who happens to have COVID, you're saying is a COVID death. Right. So, of course, to now yeah. see the liberals admitting that I think is very frustrating. Well, exactly. You know, again, <laughs> with with never any any acknowledgement that, you know, some people got there two and a half, three years ago. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I look, you know, it, we don't know what, what Diamond died of. I wonder if we will, if that information will become public knowledge. I just don't begrudge somebody in the grip of grief, mm. um, you know, trying to find some larger thing to blame. And 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 I I would I would begrudge her. I wouldn't begrudge her even if it turns out that she died of COVID. 
because she didn't get vaccinated, right? Because mm-hmm. she didn't get the thing that makes the symptoms less serious. You know, I think, again, in the grip of grief, you, you can't really fault somebody, even if they're a public figure, for saying something that, you know, may or may not be, be based in reality. Um, but I get what we'll probably find out more and then, you know, we'll be able to judge and add it to, you know, the wealth of information we have and make more educated decisions going forward. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will continue with more rising in just a minute. Please stay with us. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's constituent town hall on Friday. Audience member Lucy Can stood up and called the congresswoman from New York out on her support of funding the war in Ukraine. Let's watch that. Hace 40 años que no hay una ley de amnistía en este país. Okay? Todavía no hay una ley de amnistía en este país. Y el Partido Demócrata mandó 100 billones de dólares a nazis en Ucrania, que esta señora votó para eso. En este país necesitamos un tercer partido al estilo de AMLO en México y Petro en Colombia y Boric en Chile. El Partido Demócrata no está haciendo nada por nosotros. Nosotros nos estamos registrando independiente porque no, el Partido Demócrata no hace nada por nosotros. No, señora, no. Necesitamos registrarnos independientes. Yo voy a estar afuera. Yo voy a estar afuera registrando a la gente independiente. Gracias. No, no. No, no. In a new $2.5 billion aid package, the U.S. has sent 90 striker combat vehicles and an additional 59 Bradley fighting vehicles to Ukraine, as well as hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition, but not tanks. According to the AP, Germany said it will not send its own Leopard tanks to Ukraine unless the U.S. sends the Abrams. The United States said that the Abrams tank would not be a good fit for the current fight because of its frequent maintenance and fueling needs. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham said he's tired of the SHIT show and that the U.S. and Germany should send tanks to Ukraine as, quote, the world order is at stake. Um, <laughs> so, Robbie, I, my, my radar is a, a little bit about this tank question. Um, I will say I... I, I, I feel very conflicted about these sort of AOC town hall videos. It seems now to become like this. It's almost a meme now. People will go to try and embarrass and humiliate her by disrupting um, the town hall. Now, of course, constituents have a right to speak back to their congressperson. But this particular woman was, um, you know, registering people for an independent party. And so when she left, she said, meet me outside. I'll register you. The Democrats and the Republicans are both terrible. And, you know, much as I agree that the Democrats and the Republicans leave much to be desired, much as I find, you know, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez's, you know, stance on funding to Ukraine to be the wrong one. I I am a little bit getting tired of this, you know, who can humiliate her the most? I mean, come on, guys, like, you know, she's a congresswoman. I'm sure she's doing her best. I don't agree with her about much. I think she's wrong about a lot of things. I don't like how she uses social media. I don't like a lot of things about her. But, you know, this, I, I just... 
it's just enough already. Like, it, you know, the the it, it, this is not good for anybody. This doesn't accomplish anything. Just humiliating somebody because you know that that will get a lot of attention. I I, I have very little sympathy for that kind of thing. It, it, it just it's just really I'm really starting to sour on it. It's making me feel sorry for her, and I I I, I just it's making me defend her. And even though I I agree with the constituent, I agree with what she's she's saying. You know, where is the anti-war left? The anti-war left is dead, and you know AOC is perhaps the face of that, but this kind of thing, I don't know, Robbie, where, where are you on this? No, I'm glad you bring that up. I, I think it's one thing for a constituent to attend these town hall events and ask her very pointed questions about why she continues to support this. The question, the tone of the question can be confrontational and angry, and she can say in the question, and by the way, we need an independent third-party movement that is going to hold Democrats accountable for abandoning the left on uh, foreign interventionism, and I'm signing people outside after this event. You know, say it in 10 seconds. A ask the question. Be confrontational. That's fine. But when you just come to an event and kind of ha hijack it and start shouting down the speaker. I mean, the rest of the people there, they have their own questions they want to ask. They want AOC, I'm sure, to address a lot of things in addition to that. If you're if you're hijacking the event, and I don't know how, how long that went on from, obviously, if all it was was the clip we saw, okay, that's, I guess that's fine. But, uh, but, but like you, you know, there's a, it, it has to be done in a certain way because you're, because you, you know, you can't shout down the other people who are there who all want to get questions in. So I, I think AOC should definitely be asked about it. I'm glad activists yeah, are confronting her about it. Yeah. Um, but but you don't have a right to like take over an entire event like that. So that, that's yeah, that's and, the and, line and, and I would draw. Like it weakens the claim. Like you don't have to stand there and scream. Why are we giving this money to Nazis in Ukraine? Like, come on. Like it's you know it's like we can talk about the Azov Battalion as having a kind of you know neo-Nazi valence to it. We can talk about the fact that only a third of the weapons and a third of the money that we're sending to Ukraine make it makes it to the front. We can talk about all that stuff. But if you approach somebody who has a real role in making decisions about this, and you start throwing around language like that, do you really think AOC is not going to go back to Washington and be like, huh, that woman had a point. You know, why are we, do you know, no. Mm -hmm. All it does is make it harder for people to take a stand. All it does is make her associate a real important critique about where our money is going with the wrong side of things as opposed to being like, hey, maybe that person has a point. You know, maybe I should be talking to, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene about this. You know, somebody who's like actually been very staunchly anti-war. You know, we, we need to be finding more ways to, to make our message get heard. Well, I, I, think, I agree with you. Ask the question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just saying, I think the, the anti-AOC side and this are just the people against the Democratic consensus on funding Ukraine. I think they can't help but bring up the, the, the kind of Nazi line because of how much Democrats hurl the you're a Nazi, you're a fascist line at, at anyone and any everyone right. who supported Donald Trump. Now that, that I, I, there is a, it is true that a component of the Ukrainian resistance, not the entire army, but a component of it is, is a, is a Nazi-ish aligned group. And we are in a sort of indirect way funding that group is an irony that Democrats, again, who called everyone a Nazi, have to own. And I, I think it's just totally fair to confront them on it, even if, you know, screaming at someone or as a member of Congress that you're a Nazi, you're funding Nazis is not going to be a good, uh, a good persuasion tactic. I mean, obviously there, the idea is not necessarily to persuade AOC, but I, I guess to get the other audience members to to wake up to this reality or or maybe if AOC attends enough events where all she does is face pushback on this 
issue, then she will prioritize it more, or she'll say, hey, my constituents are really angry about this. You know, even a small number of phone calls, I hear, I understand, this is what I've been told, to a a Congress member's um, office phone will make them think that, like, so many, that tons of people are fired up about an issue because people so rarely do that. That's, I've heard that before. And and, and speaking of hypocrisies, you know, AOC herself has been a staunch defendant of, you know, vigorously approaching elected officials and judges, right, to Supreme Court justices and making your dissent heard in a very vigorous, aggressive, angry way, right? So, you know, I'm defending her. I don't know that she would have as much of a case to defend herself against this kind of behavior because she supports it when it comes to her political adversaries. But, um, you know, yeah, to your point about about, about the Azo Battalion, of course, yes, of course, they called everybody a Nazi. And now they're supporting a Nazi faction that is 100% accurate. You know, it, it, of course, that hypocrisy runs so deep. At the same time, there is a legitimate, normal person debate and critique to be had about this. You don't have to stand there and call Zelensky a crisis actor and insult a man who is, you know, clearly doing everything he can to defend his people in a very brave way. You know, you don't have to, if, you don't have to insult him to say. And we should still not give him everything he wants, right? It could be a tough call. You know, it could be both the case that Ukraine is totally, you know, the virtuous side in this, the side we want to win, and be the case that we should have a stronger say in how we go about making that happen. And it should not be the way that, you know, Zelensky necessarily wants it to go. I don't know why that is so hard for people to accept, you know, that it could both be the case that, you know, this side is, you know, the one we want to win and be the case that they shouldn't be the ones who set the terms. We should because we're the ones funding it, you know? It could both be the case that AOC has behaved in a cowardly way and be the case that, you know, randomly attacking her and trying to humiliate her publicly is not the way to get somebody to change their mind about something. Mm. Excellent. Good points, Vacha. We will have more rising right after this. Please stay with us. Teachers and educators are facing mounting pressure to tell parents when students are socially transitioning at school. This comes after school districts have increasingly been at the forefront of navigating the rights and privacy of transgender students and keeping parents informed of their children's lives at school. Democratic strategist Amisha Cross is in the studio with us now to discuss. Nice to see you, Amisha. Nice to see you, Vacha. This is really exciting. I think that, you know, this is a very interesting topic and one that we should probably talk about a lot more, especially considering the the crisis and the rise in uh, suicide rates and thoughts of suicide amongst LGBT students. As someone who's worked in the um, in school administration at both um, large public school systems like Chicago, as well as some of the smaller ones across Florida and Texas, um, the frustration here is real on both sides. On the one hand, parents feel that they need to know everything about their about their young people, which I totally understand. But the other thing is teachers and administrators, um, and having, again, served in those school districts, it becomes very difficult because you don't want to put young people potentially in a situation where you might cause harm. A lot of young people will come out to or have these discussions with their teachers more readily than they will their parents. So I I think that it's helpful to fully understand and unpack this, but it's also a very sticky situation for school administrators as well as teachers. Mm. So I want to give the New York Times some credit because I thought this story was very good and very nuanced the way they handled it. Um, it wasn't one-sided one way or the other. Um, I, so credit to them. 
like you said, Amisha, I, I think this can be a very difficult situation. What the story describes is all these cases where parents find out that their child is using a different name at school, has a different gender, whole, entire different gender identity, different different personality, is is socially transitioning, and is maybe finding out more information about the medical side of transitioning without the parents' knowledge. Even in cases, what it sounded like from the story, cases where the parents would not necessarily be opposed to any of this, but were blindsided that they had no knowledge about it. And what really stuck with me from the story was a case of a parent saying, like, okay, again, I, I, I'm cautious about this, but I'm not, like, against it, but... The school would call me and tell me if my kid was like not showing up or seemed depressed or was like going through all sorts of other changes. So why would they not tell me in, in this case if they're you know re, totally reconstructing their gender? And I, that resonated with me. What did you take away from it, Bacha? I agree with you. The piece was excellent. Um, so many of the parents profiled, probably by design, were liberals, and and talking about how frustrated they felt that they the only people who would represent them in this fight were conservatives. Um, you know, I I believe that transgender people should live with complete dignity and be protected from all discrimination. However, I find myself in this case, very solidly on the side of the parents. And I don't think they should have to prove that they're good standing, liberals in good standing, to have the right to have a say over their children. You know, teenagers, like their job is to get into power struggles with their parents. Like that's just the nature of that age. And it seems to me that the the schools have taken this position um, to, that, that really almost criminalizes just normal parenting um, and the desire a parent has to, to, to know what's going on with their child. Uh, and and I, I can't help but feel that there is um, just, I, I think that a lot of these teachers are, they, they missed the moment in American history when true bravery was called for, which was during the civil rights movement. We missed that moment. And I think that a lot of people take the energy that they wish they would be would have been called upon at that moment in time when people were really getting killed to stand up for the rights of black Americans and civil rights. And they think that they're in that fight now and they're mm. not. I mean, these parents are not abusing their children. I mean, first of all, the liberal ones who accept that their kids are transgender definitely are not abusing them. But as a society, we have a definition of what constitutes abuse. And in this article, it, it, one of the schools was treating it as abuse that the 16-year-old transgender child said, yeah, my mom's okay with it, but she doesn't take it seriously. Like they were treating that as equivalent to abusing a child. And look, normal people across the political spectrum can accept that that is not a definition of abuse that would justify taking um, parenting out of the hands of a parent and putting it in the hands of an administrator. That's That's kind of how I see it. The big issue here, I think, Bacha, is um, first and foremost, not to do harm to the student. And that's what these teachers and administrators are trying to do. They're in a very sticky situation because there is no playbook as to how to do this. 20 years ago, this was not a conversation in classrooms. 10 years ago, this wasn't a conversation in classrooms. Were there students who wanted to or, or had, had an idea of transitioning? Absolutely. But again, it wasn't part of the national context. It wasn't something that districts had to grapple with. Quite frankly, for most people, it is a past five, six-year thing 
thing that they've had to, you know, work within. And it has largely been on a school by school, case by case basis. And I think that the more it becomes a universal conversation, the more we're going to see schools and school districts kind of create a better platform of conversation. Um, again, you know, being in the classroom, I think that teachers have had to deal with civil rights issues for a very long time. This isn't just something that, you know, is, is has to do with the integration of schools or things that happened in the 60s. Quite frankly, when we're talking about a, a lot of the issues around gun violence and other things, there are several issues that teachers have to deal with every single day that affect students, families, and their community. So I do, and my hat goes off to those teachers who are bravely doing that work. And in many cases, again, there is no guidebook for it. There is no guidebook to how you um, talk to a student, and I've had this issue before, whose menstrual cycle started. They don't know what it is, and they think that they're dying because their parent has not had a conversation with them about that at home. When you have to do that, and for me, it was calling up the parent, because what you don't want to do is step in some uh, weird mm -hmm. waters, and you don't know what's going on in that household, and you don't want to all of a sudden overstep as a teacher. And I think that there has to be that understanding as well. There are certain conversations that happen in the household, and certain ones that do not. And there are students who feel more comfortable, again, having these conversations in a schoolhouse than they do with their parents. That is a conversation to be had within that, I, I feel, within the family first. But I also question why it hasn't already happened there, whether that student just may not be comfortable with it. For example, young people don't talk to their parents about sex for the most part. People don't tell their, their parents when they lost their virginity. That's a conversation that is off the table in most people's households. But I, I, I think, again, we have to treat this with the care and concern that is that needs to be there. But also, to your point and, and to Robbie's point, there has to be some set of guidelines that schools follow, that districts follow. And right now, it is willy-nilly, depending on where you live, depending on the school district. And I don't think that long-term, that's going to be the most helpful solution. And I, I understand special cases where if a teacher or a counselor, you know, thinks that the kid is going to get beaten or something because he's wearing a the rainbow bracelet or something at school, then you don't say anything. It seems like that should be more the exception than the rule, which is what this story makes it sound like. And, and then also... You know, this without any you know disrespect to the people going uh, through this or young people who are identifying whatever way, they, like I, I don't care. People, <laughs> young people should embrace their and express their individuality and their interests through clothes and accessories and interests. Like that is actually not new at all. Like, imagine you know twenty or 30, 30 years ago, more than that now, <laughs> sold. Uh, you know, kids would you'd have a goth phase or or whatever. You know, you'd dress to dress to provoke your parents. Like that is a that is like a tale as old as time is this being treated differently because it's and again I don't I think it's fine that kids do that I think that's very natural and very normal and has been part of like adolescence and teenage behavior for all time but now it's get, it's getting this special because it's not just like you're dressing like the other gender or you have mixed gendered interests it's like well you are a boy or you are a girl if you do this that has like a note of of uh, of of finality to it or uh, no because it's transitioning well it, it depends and it, it it does not necessarily have a finality to it again no. um having worked within these school districts i worked at the largest charter school uh network in the state of illinois we would have students who would transition one semester and three or four semesters transition back um i, I think that we have to again these are very case-by-case -case bases maybe this is a long-term thing for some students and for some it quite frankly is not and teachers are still learning through this process 
process. Um, administrators are still learning through this process because you still have mm -hmm. to affirm the student. You still have to affirm their community. You still have to deal with the parents. You still have to deal with the other students um, who are in the classroom who may or may not be, I don't say progressive in terms of politics, but who may or may not fully understand, accept, or want to be a part of whatever is going on in this student's transition. transition. And those are all things that are extremely important and are happening at the same time. Teachers and administrators have a really tough job with this. And I think that, you know, to, with respect to this conversation, we also have to take into consideration everything that those teachers are dealing with at the same time. This student's transition, the response that other students are having to it, the family, the community, in addition to quite possibly sometimes that teacher's own feelings. And that, that is a lot to deal with. And there is no mm. right or wrong here. There is no, again, there, there are no 10 commandments necessarily to speak to how this actually works. And they're doing it in real time. Yeah, I mean, I, I we, we do know that there is a social contagion element to this. I have, this is anecdotal, but I have a friend who has a kid in eighth grade every single one of the girls in his grade identifies as non-binary, right? Like that's not, I mean, there's just, <laughs> there's an element of social right. contagion to this. We know that from the numbers. We know that a huge proportion of um, young people who identify as LGBTQ um, do not engage in LGBTQ sexual behavior, meaning that it's an identity marker, but it's not necessarily a part of their sexuality when they engage in sexual activities, right? So, you know, given all of that, um, it, it, I think it's just to criminalize these parents, to treat them as um, somehow in the wrong, the way they felt in this story, you know, as, as somehow evil and not supportive of their children, for merely pointing out what we've been pointing out, that maybe this is a stage, that maybe this will come and go, you know, that maybe we shouldn't allow them to do lasting damage to their bodies that will prevent them from ever being able to experience sexual pleasure, you know, that th th just turn them into the bad guys for, mm -hmm. for, they are the ones who care about their children. And, you know, to get between parents and their children is just, it's just not appropriate unless there is abuse going on. And again, I think that we could all agree if we were, you know, if someone put a gun to our heads, our definitions of child abuse would probably be very close to each other. And I, I think that that's, that's just got to be, it's got to be a piece of this conversation. Well, there's some, some advice to the parents, I think, if you want it to be, a, if, if it's just the, the changing of clothes and accessories and you want it to be a phase, don't overreact to it. So, do whatever they want. If they can't get a rebellion <laughs> out of it, just, again, it's not different from the goth phase or the emo phase or whatever we used to call it before, the tomboy phase. If it's not getting a rise out of parents, then it becomes a phase, in my view. Not in every case, obviously, but I think that's the easiest way to diffuse it. We'll have more rising right after this. Mr. Borla, can I ask you, you know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission. How long did you know that without saying it publicly? Thank you very much. I'm sorry. To that question. I mean, we, we now know that the vaccines didn't stop transmission, but why did you keep it secret? You said it was 100% effective, then 90%, then 80%, then 70%. But we now know that the vaccines do not trans stop transmission. Why did you keep that secret? Have a nice day. I won't have a nice day until I know the answer. Why did you keep it a secret that your vaccine did not stop transmission? 
That was Rebel News' Ezra Levant questioning Pfizer CEO Albert Borla at the World Economic Forum last week. Quick caveat, Rebel News has faced criticism in the past for its reporting over the 2017 Charlottesville riots. However, that clip has gone viral. And on the issue of vaccine efficacy, Borla told CNBC's The Exchange back in 2021 that the vaccine's initial studies showed it protected people 100 percent of the time against hospitalization, but that it falls to low 90 percent and mid to high 80 percent after six months. So I think that question was a perfectly valid question to ask the CEO of Pfizer. Um, the, the implication, the early implication being that the vaccines were not just helping with severe uh, illness and death, but also transmission that no longer holds up. And, you know, Pfizer got government contracts. They're working to get the vaccine scheduled so it'll be protected from liability, possibly also required in some circumstances, schools and other things. Um, it, it seems like a worthwhile question to ask the CEO at this gathering of influential, wealthy people uh, from from private business and from governments, etc., um, you know, the, the common man is not really allowed into Davos. So there you have a journalist, maybe a confrontational journalist, maybe one from an outlet that a lot of people don't like, but asking a question that I think is perfectly valid. And of course, he has nothing to say. Yeah, it was a, it was an absolutely valid question. Um, I, I he he asked it in a very polite way. I mean, this seems like the Canadian version of confrontational, right? <laughs> I will not be having a good day until you answer my question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just it was just I thought that that was just a great moment of journalism and really showed up the you know the cowardice his refuse you know the refusal of the CEO of Pfizer to answer the question. Um, you know, the point was made. The point was made, and it was made in a way that you know I think. Again, you know, the theme of this show today has been a way that I really hope liberals, leftists, people who supported, you know, even Pfizer having, you know, protection from liability, let's say, because they thought it was so important, you know, Operation Warp Speed to get these vaccines out, you know, a moment that, you know, even people who maybe supported that could say that is a question they should have to answer. That is a question they should have to answer perhaps before Congress. That is a question that the American people deserve an answer to. And. I absolutely agree with you. And it's so interesting that the theme, the central theme of Davos, which we talked about on the show a lot last week, um, was the the harm of disinformation. Um, I'm, I'm sure you paid attention to that that panel hosted by Brian Stelter, uh, whose former show on CNN, you and I have both been on it, uh, where he interviewed a number of people about the central harm of disinformation. And it, it was it was alarmist about how bad it is for society allowing people to say things that might be wrong or untrue or exaggerated on Facebook and on Twitter and on YouTube, and how, how we can't ever have society can't function until we fix that problem that was, they, they said all the other problems being discussed at Davos are linked to that problem and okay and here you have a question being put to someone uh, who, who who propagated a falsehood about the vaccines elites propagated that falsehood and that was just ended up being disinformation. And so they never turn this this disinformation framing on themselves and talk about all the way that the mainstream or the, the elite or the or the, the health 
officials in the government, how all of those people got things wrong. Not always, not everything they said was wrong, but sometimes it was wrong. And, and, how, and the problems that caused. It's always framed as you, the person scrutinizing them, the things you got wrong or might have shared that were wrong. That's this disaster for society. But when we get things wrong, we, that's not worth talking about? Yeah, disinformation has become the new accusation of racism. The, the, the word elites use to silence scrutiny and criticism of what of the things that are in their economic interests, right? So you had A.G. Salzberger sitting there saying, you know, the biggest threat to, to media credibility is, is, uh, is disinformation, right? Couldn't possibly be that the biggest threat to the New York Times is credibility, is anything the New York Times did to squander its credibility, right? It has to be some nefarious, evil external force that impugns the motives and the character of the people demanding accountability on behalf of powerful elites. You know, they always have to find a new way to silence critique ostensibly in the name of some higher virtue. And they seem to have found it here. And yes, you, you guys did a great segment on, you know, this this uh, woman who responded to Brian Stelter by saying, you know, I hope one day soon there it will be, you know, uh, misinformation and hate speech will be illegal in America. Mm -hmm. You know, the, mm -hmm. the thing that, you know, I mean, on, honestly, I, I'm sure a lot of our viewers are well aware of this. But, you know, this is, you know, this is, we don't call this the greatest country and the most free country on earth for nothing. You know, the thing that makes us so wildly above European countries is that we have a First Amendment. We very much value our freedom of expression, but our elites really don't. They really don't have the same yen and, and heart for freedom of expression because it means it gives average people, regular, normal people, the right to talk back, the right to have their own opinions, the right to say, look, just because you're richer than me doesn't make you more right or give you the right to tell me how to live my life. Mm -hmm. and, and she, the person you're talking about who made that comment, the, uh, the speech regulator on behalf of the European Union, if you listen to her full remarks, she was actually more kind of moderate or open-minded on the question of how much censorship is too much. Obviously, I would say <laughs> I would draw that line way differently and, than her. Yeah. But she was more uh, nuanced on the subject than the publisher of the New York Times. He was the most alarmed of all. He was the one very explicitly saying that, look, we need a, 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 a a regime where Facebook prioritizes content from places like, oh, maybe the New York Times instead of <laughs> others. And that's what we have to do. I, I found that very telling. Yeah, it's telling and it's terrifying. And, you know, this handshake agreement this sort of between, you know, the deep state, social media companies and liberal media outlets. Uh, it's bad. It's really, yeah. really bad. And, you know, honestly, it makes you really think like, you know, so you take a place like the Daily Wire, right? And they're co consistently ranked sort of highest. You, know, you get, get t Facebook's top 10 stories every day. You know, mm -hmm. seven of them are Ben Shapiro says this, Ben Shapiro says that. You imagine how much more reach he would have if all of these, you know, forces were not operating in order to try to limit it. I mean, there's just so much appetite among the American people for just normal points of view that they will not get from, you know, these more established liberal media outlets that have they have a very straightforward narrative and it's very clearly identified with one side of the political spectrum in America. I should mention, I did see two or three times over the last few days a, a something go viral on Twitter that was a screenshot of like a slide at the World Economic Forum or an alleged slide at the World Economic Forum or something on their agenda or something that people there believe that turned out to be that was fake. Um, so there, this is an issue and like 
people, please stop sharing. Like, please stop falling for fake content. Or if you accidentally share something that's fake, delete it. Um, <laughs> then, like on the comments, on the replies, you have people after people saying this is actually made up. And then I, some people say, well, it sounds like something they might think. You you do not come off good when you do that. It, like share, we can criticize the actual things these people think without like making up things. It's never it's never a good look. So do be on, do be on the lookout, you know, for some of that stuff. For misinformation, if you will. Yeah. Um, I, I will also say I, I'm sort of of the camp that, you know, this is sort of a distraction. I mean, you know, obviously it's delicious to pour over, you know, these elites exposing themselves and saying the quiet part out loud and admi- admitting, you know, the collusion between all of these like larger forces. But at the end of the day, I really don't feel that the World Economic Forum itself is having a deep impact on American public life. I think that our, you know, elites have way too much power, way too much political power and way too much money. Um, and they tend to go there. But, you know, if that whole organization sort of dropped into the ocean, we would still be having the same um, culture wars in America, the same battles, the same class divide. You know, it's more a symptom of our class divide than a cause. And I think a lot of people see it as sort of like a cause, you know, as, you know, some sort of like, you know, where they machinate and when they come up with like the ploy to how to hurt the working class. And it's like, no, that's all happening, you know, at a very individual level, often very unconsciously. And we can fight it at an individual level. You know, for example, um, you know, after disinformation, I noticed climate, of course, was like the number one topic you heard a lot about coming out of Davos. You know, Republican legislators, even at the local level, have proven very powerful and adept at fighting more extremist um, climate agendas. And so that gives me a lot of hope. And I I do see the kind of, I hope when people focus on this and share this stuff, they're doing it in the spirit of like, gosh, look at these idiots and not in the spirit of, my God, they control everything, because I think that would be a little bit of a mistake. Mm. Wise words. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. There's some drama unfolding in the world of conservative media. Conservative media commentator Stephen Crowder, conservative YouTube personality, has accused Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens' Daily Wire of being in bed with big tech. So here's what happened. Stephen Crowder is a YouTube uh, conservative who was formerly affiliated with The Blaze. He's on his own now. And apparently The Daily Wire reached out to him with an offer to acquire him and to host his show going forward. Crowder hated the terms of that agreement. He said they were going to penalize him for if he ever got demonetized on YouTube or other platforms, they were going to start subtracting money from the contract. Here's Stephen Crowder talking about it. They don't get deals that they can be wage slaves for a little bit, come over and make a salary and grow their brand. They can be wage slaves for a little bit. They can be wage slaves for a little bit. So Stephen Crowder got on the phone with Jeremy Boring, who is uh, Daily Wire uh, co-creator of it with Ben Shapiro, and surreptitiously recorded him, which is pretty wild because they were very good friends previously, recorded him saying that line about uh, what you would be if you were a young, coming up conservative, you know, starting out, and you have to be a wage slave for a little bit. Um, Missing in all of this was that the contract they offered Stephen Crowder Fifty million dollars over, I believe, three years, which is a whole lot of money. Here's Candace Owen responding to the debacle on Tim Pool's podcast. 
Well, LOL to anyone who thinks that Steven Crowder is not doing this to make money. Like, I mean, I just have to outwardly laugh. He's he's the person in in a disguise. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? He's he's like, I'm not. I'm here because I'm, I care about all of you. That's why I'm recording my friend and doing this crappy thing where I literally could have just said, no, I don't like those terms, and then said to everybody, I'm starting my own outfit. Fair. You walk away all the time. You have to go. You, you, I have walked away. You know, I had an offer from the blaze. It didn't work for me. You know what I mean? I don't need yeah. to piece apart the, the contract. You know, it, it, I love those guys. I think Tyler is, is amazing. I mean, this is what I'm saying. People need to stop thinking that he is some knight in shining armor. He's not. He's not a knight in shining armor. And if you can't see that, watch this video because I think his acting is never more apparent. Even the titles. I didn't want to do this. Oh, really? Then why the hell did you record him? So this is a pretty big uh, uh controversy between The Daily Wire and Steven Crowder, you don't often see high-profile, conservative, uh, 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 online commentator people feuding like this. So I, I think it's really interesting. I want to talk about it. And, and I invited you know, representatives of both sides of the argument to come on the show. Hope that happens in the future. Um, Amisha, what do you make of it? The conservatives are fighting. This is hilarious. Um, <laughs> before this, I honestly didn't know who the heck Steven Crowder was. Part of it is because that's not a group that I follow. Um, I, I find this interesting because obviously everybody's in this for the money. You don't become a commentator on either side of the aisle and have these large followings without trying to stack your coins. Candace is in it for the money as well. People on the left who do it are also in it for the money. This is, yeah. this is how this works. It's not just about spreading news and awareness. Anybody who tells you that is probably lying. Um, I would sit in this chair and host this show for free. I just enjoy your company so much and Baccio's company and even Brianna's company. And your nose is growing. Um, at the end of the day, they're a $50 million contract. Of course he wasn't going to mention that in his speech because you can't create a grievance and get people to follow you and said grievance when there's $50 million plus on the other end when the majority of Americans with families are making 60 or less. That's 60K or less. Like, this is not... A, this is not a woe is me story. This is a guy who says that literally his brethren in, in, in conservative, on the conservative right is in bed with or has these cushy deals with a lot of the big tech companies. Well, guess what? So does everybody. <laughs> big tech is the, is the reason why many, many of us have voices in media. They carry the message on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. All of that's big tech. Without big tech and some level of communication with them, you would not have a voice. So it, it, it's interesting to me that he is using this as a demonization but also that, to Candace's point, and I don't agree with Candace often, if you are going to have these squabbles, you could have had this with them personally. This never had to come into the public square. The recording didn't have to happen. Turn down deals. I'm sure everybody on this panel, all of us have probably turned down deals before. Um, we didn't make a public hubbub about it. It's mm -hmm. just not that deep. Uh, Batya, I'm sure you would do this job for a mere $40 million, right? <laughs> Of course, of course. Um, you know, I, I, I think this is such an interesting story because, first of all, did he not think that the $50 million was going to, like, that the first thing the Daily Wire was going to do was 
sort of leak that? I mean, like, where did he think this was going? Um, I also had this feeling watching the the Candace Owens rant, like, I had the same feeling I had when Elon Musk put out his proposal for how to end the war in Ukraine, which I thought was a really good proposal. And everybody started attacking him and trashing him. And I was just thinking, don't make me don't make me defend this guy. Don't make me be on his Mm -hmm. side. And I felt that way watching this, you know, Candace Owens video. She was absolutely right. Um, And it was interesting to see her coming out and, you know, swinging on in support of the Daily Wire. Yes, she works there, but they had a whole kerfuffle um, over Kanye West. If you recall, she kept defending Kanye and defending him and defending him, even as his sort of commentary became more and more anti-Semitic until he ended up defending Nazis. And she, you know, she kept saying, look, I'm not going to denounce my friend, which, you know, fair point, but it made the, the Daily Wire look very bad because, you know, Ben Shapiro was getting a lot of flack for that. So, you know, it seems that, you know, at that, you know, whatever happened there, you know, I'm sure they were happy to see her coming out, you know, in full defense um, of the platform. And, you know, it, it is so interesting to think about, you know, what is it that makes Steven Crowder worth $50 million over, you know, three or four years? Like, what is it that he's delivering that to the to the Daily Wire would be worth that amount of money. I, I mean, do you guys have sort of a, a sense of where he is and the value add that he brings? I mean, I understand that his following is huge and that he has a lot of young listeners, um, you know, and in terms of providing that kind of young male listenership, you know, more in the sort of Jordan Peterson model than the Andrew Tate model, if, if I could use that sort of dichotomy to, to, to express something, um, you know, that 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 is a, an active viewership, you know, that mm-hmm. the Daily Wire is interested in cultivating and, and providing content for. I mean, well, wh- what do you guys su- see as his value add? Success success speaks for itself. He has a huge following. He has a lot of very loyal viewers. You have people, I was looking a little bit at the comments on the videos and on online, on Twitter. You have a lot of people defending him. A lot of people love the guy. Even I, I think he has the less compelling argument in this dispute. Like, by far, it's not even close. But he has loyal, loyal viewers, listeners, etc. And it makes sense that the Daily uh, Daily Wire would want to acquire that. Um, and and the but the accusation he's making against the Daily Wire that they're uh, that's really what's at the heart of this that. Because in his deal, they would take money, deduct money from him if he gets in trouble for the things he says and is, is, is suspended or something on YouTube or, or, where, or elsewhere. Having that co- clause in the contract would be like the Daily Wire caving to big tech censorship. That's the accusation, which is a really right. um, uh, that's a really serious charge to to put on a, a, a conservative company like the Daily Wire that's com- always complaining about Disney and other places, you know, doing what woke censors want. Whatever. But I would question how uncommon this actually is. And I say that just because... Not right, not uncommon become, at all. If you become um, deplatformed to, to a certain extent, or you your viewership is removed for any reason, and the entire contract was based on the viewership and what you were able to bring along with it, wouldn't that automatically mean that at some point you lose your value to them? Um, it, it, and I, I feel like that's, that's a basically exactly <laughs> what Jeremy Boring said in his response video. Said, "Look, if, if you're, we're going to spend fifty million dollars on you. If your ability, it, it, it wouldn't be us punishing you, but if YouTube punishes you and you're making, 
you're bringing in far less viewers and far less dollars. We just we couldn't continue to pay that amount. And he also said, you know, this when they started negotiations with Crowder uh, before they could even have a conversation. Crowder's people said, you got to send us uh, some paper with what you're going to offer. So they put this together, and it was a little bit boilerplate. Like they could have negotiated all, all these parts if Crowder, you know, was really worried about YouTube. Maybe they could have made something different. I think they would also wanted to have a structure where the most controversial things he might say that would get him in trouble are things he would say it on a different platform. It helps to mitigate that. Yeah. You're right. I think it helps to mitigate that type of crisis because if you know that your money is going to dwindle if you say something way too crazy, then you're going to reel back to a certain extent. But to Botch's point earlier, I think that he was initially you know, quoted this level of money and given this within the contract because of the younger audience he brings. We have to be real. Conservatives as well as Democrats, the understanding is that your bread and butter is bringing in those younger audiences. Um, we know that the original top three isn't doing it, ABC, NBC, CBS. We know that Fox isn't doing it. We know that, well, CNN is basically dead. We know MSN <laughs> isn't doing it. It's just not <laughs> happening. So in the digital space, you need those younger audiences. In the voting booths, you need those younger audiences. And it matters to have that. And I think that because he was able to propel himself and bring in those younger people, that that means that he can count count this type of money in contracts. But the blow up is way out of proportion because it just doesn't make sense considering what that contract actually would have brought him and the fact that it makes sense. If you get deplatformed for any reason, of course I'm not going to pay you 50 million continually. It, why? Yeah. Right. So so in publishing now, a morality clause is like Derriger since Weinstein, you know, sold his, a book for, you know, two million dollars. And then, of course, after the whole Me Too movement, they made nothing on it. So now it is very re normal to have a morality clause and they are often very amorphous. It's very hard to imagine that The Daily Wire would not have, you know, acceded to some kind of demand to say, look, if I get deplatformed for talking about vaccines, you have to treat that differently than if I get deplatformed for raping somebody. Right. Which would be a complete normal morality clause that, I, you know, I think a lot of people could, you know, understand. I mean, Owens's point was that he was just using this as an opportunity to start his own thing, you know, in this kind of backhanded way. And I will just say, you know, you know, almost a prayer. Let us all stop before we get to a point where we are recording a friend and then releasing that recording as some kind of marketing ploy and think we're the good guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Please, God, protect us all from ending up in that situation. Yeah, 100%. And I think that really that should erode a lot of sympathy people, even maybe his followers might have had for him, because that is a just a really awful thing to do. Don't do that. I, in fairness to like presenting, you know, the, the, the strongest version of his argument, setting the recording aside, I think he was trying to say that the Daily Wire in, in, in standing on principle and standing against big tech censorship should not have a clause like that, even though that might be routine in other places. Like they have to practice the values they're preaching. And then the Daily Wire is saying that's not we still believe in those values. We don't want to live in a world where where big tech silences people or punishes people for speaking. But that is the world we live in. So to be to be realistic, we'd have to have this clause, or we'd have to probably pay you like a lot less money if the if if, if there's the possibility that we can't monetize you anymore. Is his recording device the one from Home Alone? I <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think uh, I think that was a shout out to um, to Home Alone. Um, anyway, it's. Uh, it's an interesting dispute because these, these kinds of disputes don't often spill out uh, into the public um, so yeah. much. And, and I, found, I, I did find the response from Jeremy Boring, Matt Walsh, Candace Owens uh, pretty compelling. But I think Crowder is going to be making his case again on Tim Pool's show maybe later today. So we'll be watching out for that. Maybe we'll discuss it tomorrow. 
Tomorrow on Rising, The Intercept's Jimmy Tobias will join us to discuss his reporting on unredacted NIH emails showing efforts to rule out the lab origin of COVID. Bacha, it's been a pleasure to see you. Amisha, it's been great to have you with us as well. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that you can consume podcasts. And we're also on Roku. We're on other streaming services. We're everywhere. We're everywhere. So catch us wherever fits you best. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye.